Ephesians chapter 4. Today we are going to finish the chapter together. I'm excited to do it. This is, this is one of the more practical sections in really the whole New Testament, but specifically Ephesians. We have, we've talked and the kids have just walked through it and I think that's good for us as a church, not just as kids, to, to think about where we've come from in Ephesians and to see sort of the, the flow of thought. Because it's all connected, right? This is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this way. And so it's all connected. So we can't separate the practicality of what we're talking about, what we did last week and what we're talking about today, and then what we're going to go forward in in chapters 5 and 6. We can't separate that from what the kids have just woohooed about, that salvation is ordained of God. By grace, through faith, it's all from beginning to the end, it's of God. And so... Don't let that slip out of your minds as we talk today about a lot of just practical things to do. Remember last week, Paul was explaining to believers how to live out this new identity that they have. We talked about identity last week, who we are in Christ. In verse 23, Paul says that Christians' minds are being renewed in order to put on the new self and to live out our new identity in everyday life. This is not just like when you come to church on Sundays, you live this way. Even more specifically, Paul's saying this is how you live out in the workplace. We're going to talk more about that today. This is how you live it out in your families. It is how you live it out in the church, but not only that. Remember too, Paul gives all of these reasons how you, you live like this, and he gives theological background for it, like theological reasons for why you do it. Our practice and our theology are tied together. What you believe about God absolutely affects almost every decision that you make throughout the day. Last Sunday, we also looked at at the first two things together in verses 25, 6, and 7. And it was was this. God, number one, God wants his people to be truth tellers. God despises a lying tongue and Satan is the father of lies. And so we should, as believers, walking in the spirit and putting on the new self, we should replace lying with truth telling. And number two from last week, God wants his people to be angry with godly anger, not selfish anger. And there is a huge difference between those that we talked about last week. Anger that leads to revenge or ungodly behavior in general is sinful anger. It's selfish anger, and it should be repented of by Christians and put away. So we should replace lying with truth-telling, and we should replace selfish anger with godly anger. Why? Because we as Christians are called to live differently. And so Paul, in our text this morning, continues just giving these extremely practical examples of what this looks like, what the change that comes with a relationship with Jesus looks like. And so join me in reading Ephesians chapter 4 verses 28 through 32. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ has forgiven you let's pray together god it's it's so easy for us to do just the same things 
day after day, never stopping to compare those things with what your word has to say about how Christians are supposed to live or how we're supposed to behave in general. So Lord, help us to see with new eyes today how you want us to live, how you want us to conduct ourselves in our places of work, in the community, in our church, in our families. God, we thank you for giving us your spirit to convict us of sin, for your mercy and forgiveness when we do sin, Lord, and for the church to call us back to right living. Give us ears to hear this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay, obviously there was a problem with the people that Paul was writing to. It was a problem with thievery. So in the first century in Asia Minor, stealing was an issue. Probably much of the work that was available to the people there was seasonal. And they didn't have a whole lot of skills unless they were born into a family of, of like fishermen or tent making or something like that. During the off seasons when work was not easily found, it probably got hard. Life was probably tough. It would have been difficult to support a family in this kind of a situation. Um, if you factor in not just the difficulties of finding work, but any kind of physical disability that would have been or some kind of climate crisis like a flood or a drought, people often would resort to stealing. But Paul reminds Christians, believers, he says, this kind of behavior and this kind of practice is not the way of the Christian. This is not the way that you learned Christ. Instead, believers were made for honest work, not stealing. For honest work, stealing definitely involves taking something that doesn't belong to you, like shoplifting, that sort of thing. But I think it also means a little bit more like stealing your boss's time when you're on the job or someone's innocence or taking recognition or glory. I've heard this said, expecting success without hard work is like trying to harvest where you haven't planted. It doesn't make sense. You haven't done the work to do that, so why would you expect the success to come? When I was a, um, kind of a preteen, 11, 12, 13, 14, I used to cut grass. Anybody cut mow, mow yards for money? Some of you mow your yards because you have to, or else you'd live in a jungle. But some of you young people might mow grass to make, to make a little bit of money. I did that. Uh, there were a couple of families in Ellsbury that I was the primary groundskeeper for. And they were smaller yards, so I'd load up our little push mower. I would, I would take this push mower in the back of my dad's truck, and they would drive me to Ellsbury. And I would get it out, and I would mow these folks' yard. And it, it took me anywhere from an hour to a couple of hours. And when I was in school, I was homeschooled for part of my upbringing, and I read a poem called The $5 Job. Has anyone ever heard of this? I think it's from like 1948. It was probably in like a Reader's Digest or something. But I read that as part of my schooling. And even, of course, this was, you know, probably in the, in the early 90s, mid-90s. $5 wasn't a whole lot even then. But in the f- 50s and the 40s, it, it meant a lot more. And so this this poem talked about this boy who lived next to like a duchess, someone very important. And she grabbed him one day. And said, hey, I've noticed that you don't do anything on Thursdays. You're going to come mow my yard. Okay. So he mowed the grass and he did a terrible job the first time. And he knocked on her door and said, I'm done. And she said, okay, well, what do you think you deserve to be paid? He said, 
a quarter? She said, well, I'm going to give you $2. Start there because you need, you need to know you're worth more than a quarter. But next time you're going to do better. And so this, this went on and on. And she encouraged him, but she told him, she said, there's hardly anybody that can do a $4 job. And a $5 job is impossible. Well, it got to the point where this young boy started to see that as a challenge. And it started to really bug him when she would say things like, you're a pretty solid three, $3 earner. <laughs> and so it started to really bug him. And so he began to look for ways to be better and to work harder. And so it, it, it turns out he, he does, I'll spoil the poem for you. He does a $5 job. But he found out what he'd do is he'd, he'd mow, and I, I don't know if it was a, a gas-powered mower, if it was one of those hand-push ones, but he would mow a little bit, and then he would lay down under the tree and take a nap. And then he would get up, and he could see with fresh eyes the parts of the lawn that weren't quite even. He would see, he would, and then he would do all of that work. And he, So it took him like 10 hours to do this job that it took him, I don't know, maybe an hour or two at the beginning. But he he, he accomplished a $5 job that influenced the way that I tried to mow grass. And, and so I wanted to do the very best that I could to earn that money. And so hard work was important. My, my parents did a good job of instilling that in me. It seems like, and I don't know that it's, it's having to do with 2020 or where we've come as a culture, but just probably human nature. We don't often really like hard work. We tend to resist hard work. And I think back to the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam something to do in chapter 2 before sin ever even entered the picture in chapter 3. Guess what it was? Work the garden. You can see in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God gave Adam hard work to do before sin even entered the picture. So you know what that says? God values hard work. Hard work is a good thing for Christians. I think it's a good principle for all people, but especially believers. Friends, honest and hard work is good. It is. Work, I think we could say, is actually a gift from God. I know some of you are are thinking about walking into wherever you work tomorrow, and that is not what you're thinking. You are not thinking this is a gift from God. I get that. Some some works are, are more workplaces are more of a challenge than others. But as I mentioned last week, if we view our places of work as a place that God is sending us into, it should change our outlook. And I hope it does. Hard work is, is good for us. Paul says it this way in the first Thessalonians chapter three. He says, If anyone is unwilling to work, he should not eat. Whoa, okay. It's important. It's an important part of our culture, it's an important part of our families, our communities, of our lives. Honest work is something that we should not avoid. It's something that we should participate in and take pride in. But that's not all that Paul says here in Ephesians 4. He says, yeah, we should work hard to provide for our family. We should work hard because it's a good thing. But we don't just work hard for those reasons. We work hard for other people. Look back at verse 28. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Hard and honest work is good and right, but this is, this is the deeper purpose for work that Paul calls us to. We should labor in honest work to be able to share with those in need. He says the same kind of thing in Romans 12, verse 13. 
share with the saints in their needs. Okay, from what we've already talked about, there's three options that I see regarding work. Number one, as Paul was telling them to stop, he said you can, you can steal to get what you need. That's one option. Second option, you can work hard and get stuff for yourself. The third option, you can work hard in order to give. John Wesley put it this way. He says, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, so that you can give away as much as you can. So what, is this, what would this look like as we start a new year? I think it should look like being generous with the church that you're a part of. I think it, it looks like supporting missionaries who share our beliefs and our desire to take the gospel to all the nations. It looks like being sensitive to the needs of others in our church community. Now, this isn't going to look the same for every person. It's not going to look the same for every family. So please don't think that I'm uh, saying there's any requirements from the church being put on you as far as your giving. A lot of times, if you have a lot of time on your hands, you don't have a lot of money. And on the, in the flip way, if you have more money, you don't have a lot of time on your hands. So if you don't have a lot of extra money, let me just encourage you, be generous with your time. And here's some ways that you can do that. Write notes of encouragement. Write letters to people in our church. You could volunteer in a ministry in our church. And there's a lot of them that we can choose from. Jason's already asked about volunteers for Awana, youth group, angel wings, home teams, the kitchen committee, Sunday school, nursery, and more. Volunteer your time. Use the gifts that God has given you to bless your church family and your community. You could help with uh, beautifying the church grounds or organizing a community event or designing a new space here or setting up meals for a family in need. The options are endless. If you don't have a lot of extra money to give, be generous with your time. And on the flip side, if you don't have a lot of extra time, be generous with your money. Because there's a lot of things that are the money that we give supports. Families in our church, in our community that they need assistance on, on paying power bills because they're falling on hard times. There's always extra expenses with upkeep of the church building and property. And as I mentioned before, our church supports several full-time missionary families that you could give to. They're always, these families are always concerned about meeting their budgets and their financial needs being met. So this is the first principle for the day, the third in our list, and it's that, it's this, that we should replace stealing with honest work and giving. Move on to 20, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk is an interesting word. Uh, I think everyone has their own definitions of what this might be. It might be a dirty joke. It might be a four-letter word. So what, what is it really discussing? What is it really talking about? Well, let's go to the word. Our standards should come from God and his word, right? Not our culture's definitions of what corrupting talk would be. It's interesting, the word corrupt in the Greek here, and you can see it on the screen, it's a word called sapros. And it literally means rotten, corrupt, spoiled, or worthless. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was talking about the bad fruit of the tree, rotten fruit of the tree in Matthew 7. And it's the same word he used when he was talking about rotten fish in Matthew 13. I had a conversation with a friend this week, and they were um, describing some, some bad food that they ate. 
and the effects that it had. Have any of you ever eaten something that was bad and you got food poisoning? I don't think I ever have. I'm very thankful for that because I hear your horror stories and it terrifies me. But you know, when, when your body takes something in that isn't right, it lets you know about it, doesn't it? Sometimes in very extreme ways that we won't go into, but it affects you to your core. Uh, you know, you were fine and healthy before eating it, and then all of a sudden, your body is saying, you have made a mistake, my friend, and we have to fix this. It's not going to be pleasant for you. Our bodies recognize when something isn't right for it, for the most part, and it sometimes rejects it very violently. But imagine, imagine just for a second, if your body did the same thing every time you said something rotten. If our bodies responded the same way when we said something rotten. Some people would spend most of the day in the bathroom. This kind of talk, it does not nourish the hearer. It does not uh, fulfill the hearer. It makes both you as you speak it and the person that you speak it to sick. It really does. And as I said, this, this includes the curse words, four-letter words, taking the Lord's name in vain, that kind of a thing. But I think verse 31 that we'll kind of peek ahead at just for a second, I think it gives us a little bit more information about what corrupting talk looks like because it talks about lying, gossip, blasphemy, slander, all of these things. Here's a general rule of thumb when thinking about corrupting talk. If you think it might displease God, don't say it. You may have heard it put this way. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It's no surprise that we have all figured out that that old saying, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We've all figured out that's not true. It's not true because our words have power. Our words have an impact on other people. They have the power to hurt. And they have the power to heal in a lot of ways. The words that come out of a Christian's mouth should be filled with grace and should build the other person up. Christian words should edify. Our words as believers should edify and build up the people that we're talking and using them to. When you holler and you scream and use your words carelessly, you are blasting everyone in the face with rottenness. When you just put it in the, the context of the rotten fish analogy, when you speak in a way that is not Christ-like, imagine just rotten fish flying out of your mouth and smacking people in the face. Because in a spiritual sense, that's what's happening. You don't want to smell that kind of stuff. You don't want to put it in your body for sure. Does anybody want to be around that? Actually, I think some people do. I think some people like the rotten fish smell because that's how they smell all the time. They like to be around that. And when you've got somebody who doesn't smell like that coming over, you feel threatened. And that's when people start calling you names like goody two-shoes and holier than thou because you're not participating in their lifestyle and so they have to talk down to you. We're doing some cleaning after Christmas uh, this past week. And part of that included our stove. Now, normally that's not a thing you would clean after Christmas, but we had been cooking and an egg casserole dish had gotten spilled in the stove. You know what happens when eggs get spilled in the stove and then reheated when the oven is turned on and then reheated. And it's not, it's not good. It's not pleasant at all. 
But you know what I, I noticed? And you guys have noticed this kind of thing too. After a while, you kind of didn't even notice it anymore. But then you'd go outside or you'd go downstairs and you'd come back on you. Whoa, it just hits you all over again. But think about that. When we're around the stink long enough, we stop smelling it for what it is. When, when we make a habit of corrupting talk coming out, dead fish flying at people's faces, it starts to not bother us anymore. And that's a problem. I hope that's not you today. I pray it isn't. I hope that you're not so used to corrupting talk that it doesn't affect you anymore. I hope that you're not so used to it from hearing it in your workplace or in your family or whatever, wherever it might be, that it's you're numb to it. We shouldn't be. Corrupting talk should always affect us negatively because we're called not to do it. Verse, look, just look at verse 28 again. Let no corrupting talk, not just a little, all of it, gone. I realize that this is a difficult thing if you have made it a habit or if you are used to the smell. It takes some time. It takes some encouragement. It takes some effort. It's worth the effort, brothers and sisters. If you feel like maybe it doesn't bother you like it should, I would encourage you to, to find a mature Christian brother or sister in our church that you know, ask them to keep you accountable, to check in with you. I would also encourage you, first off, repent of it. It's wrong. That kind of speech, that kind of attitude and word does not encourage the hearer. It is not full of grace, and so it should not be said. Give your tongue over to the Lord for His purposes. Stop using it for your own selfish ones. Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27 that we talked about last week tells us that selfish anger is the devil's playground. He says, put away anger. Don't let it sun go down and give a foothold for the devil. Verses 29 through 31 tell us that corrupting talk grieves the Spirit of God Himself. These are two specific and very potent reminders that our actions and our words have enormous consequences and enormous impact. They don't only affect us. They affect everyone around us. And that absolutely involves your family. And that absolutely involves the church. And it trickles down into the community and into our nation. In place of corrupt talk, we should speak words that build up. We should speak words that encourage and give life Now, this is true in marriage. This is true in parent and kid relationships. Really, it's it's true in in every relationship. You can encourage someone 10 times and tell them what a wonderful job they've done. But when you fly off the handle and you blow it, guess which one they remember? Words have power. They do hurt, but they can heal. So I, I said before, not to say something if you see if you think that it will displease God. Let me just use the words the Bible uses here. Ask when evaluating what you're going to say. Well, what I'm about to say, not just displease Him, but will it grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Because that's what happens when we just let loose with our corrupting talk. By using the Greek word sapros, Paul says, this way of talking is not just rotten and gross, but it's worthless has no value to anyone except to grieve the Spirit. At some point, you've probably thought of the impact that your words have on other people. 
And I, I hope this has influenced how you speak to them. But have you ever thought about the impact of your words have on the Holy Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, that better influence how we speak as Christians. If it doesn't, it's likely that our corrupt talk is coming out of corrupt heart. So, friends, repent of this and believe in Jesus today. Our current habits may not leave immediately. They weren't formed overnight. They may not leave overnight. They may. Remember, God placed His Spirit within you as His child to give you power to overcome based on the blood and person of Jesus within you. Let's move on to verse 30. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I want you to notice something about this. When we speak, more is going on than just our words coming out of our mouth and going into the air. There's more happening here that Paul is explaining to us. There's an unseen spiritual aspect to how we speak and what we say. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, especially based on chapter 6 of Ephesians, that there is a war for your souls going on. And not just for your souls, I'd say a war for your tongue going on. The enemy wants to use it to tear down. James equated it to a spark that sets the whole forest ablaze. The enemy wants to use it to hurt people. The Spirit of God wants to redeem your every word for building people up when they hear you. This should remind us that our words have eternal impact. Every careless word that we speak, we're going to be held accountable for one day. Now, I'm going to get really real and personal for just a second. The way that you speak is a testimony of the power of Jesus in your life. You understand what I mean when I say that? If you claim Christ and join in or laugh at the dirty jokes being told around you, what does that say about the Savior who you say has redeemed you? Is he laughing at that? Or is he grieving? If you claim Christ and you participate in harsh or abusive language, what does that say about the power of Jesus in your life? Is he pleased with that? Or is he grieving? I realize these are hard things. I realize that every single person in this room wrestles with this. You're looking at a person that does. But brothers and sisters, if we're committed to putting off the old self and putting on the new self, we have to willingly submit to God and let Him replace our sinful habits with holy habits. It might start small. It may just be a a, a little baby step at a time of replacing bad habits with good habits. But brothers and sisters, you got to start somewhere. Do it. Start today. Commit in your heart with the Lord right now to stop, put off the old self, and put on the new self. Paul gives us three guidelines here in these verses for judging our words, for evaluating what we say. Here's a question from verse 29 and 30. Is it helpful for building others up? Is what you're saying helpful for building others up? Does it edify them? Does it enlighten? Does it encourage? Number two, does it fit the occasion? Does it fit the hearer's needs? Or are we only speaking with them to vent our own frustrations, our own problems? Does this person really need what I'm saying? Thirdly, does it give grace to the hearer? Is it beneficial? Is it right? If love is our habit, then benefiting others with how we speak will become a way of life. So 
The next point is that we should replace corrupting talk with edifying talk. Remember, Paul is not just giving us a list of things not to do. He's telling us what to replace them with. Don't be full of corrupt talk. Replace it with edifying talk. Build other people up. Because according to James, our words lie at the very heart of our Christian religion. It's interesting to me how much of the new self that Paul is describing here has to do with altered speech patterns. With how we're supposed to speak differently. Right? We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to have corrupting words come out of our mouth. In James chapter 3, he talks a lot about the evil things that are done by the tongue. And I've mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 1 verse 26, James says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And that's the same word that corrupting means. It's worthless. Is that our religion? Because brothers and sisters, the way that we speak is one of the most obvious things to the world about the power of Christ in our life. Paul says that if our words are worthless, our religion is worthless. In other words, if our words are corrupt, what does that make our religion? It also makes it corrupt. But this is not how we learned Christ. This is not how you learned Christ. If God has saved you, this is not where he wants you to stay. Look at verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. Now last week I pointed out what the Bible says about the effects of bitterness. Let me just recap briefly. Proverbs 14.30 talks about how envy or bitterness makes the bones rot. Acts 8.22 and 23 says you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And even James chapter 3.16 says where bitter envy and self-seeking exist, there confusion and every evil are present. Bitterness can easily affect everything. Even stuff that's not connected to the initial problem gets affected by bitterness very quickly. And I, I mentioned this quote last week by Joanna Weaver. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Christians, brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to keep our smoldering anger or our buried bitterness because it will destroy us. It will destroy our testimony and it will destroy everyone around us. What can we do? Well, first I'd say confess your anger. Confess your bitterness to God and plead with Him to take it away from you. Repent of our anger problem. Just call it what it is. It's sin. Seek accountability. Go out of your way to find someone to hold you accountable. Here's something that I feel like the Lord convicted me of this week. An angry person is actually just a selfish person. Let that sink in for a second. An angry person is really just a selfish person because they get upset when things don't go their way. They get upset when someone does something that they don't like and then they retaliate to make the other person feel as bad as they do. Instead of a self-centered attitude where the world revolves around me and my feelings and my wants, Paul commands a different way. He commands kindness in verse 32. He commands compassion towards each other. We don't return evil for evil, but instead we return good 
Christians offer forgiveness. Here's the thing. These actions aren't just for the other person's benefit. Kindness and forgiveness is not just for the the other person that we're giving that to. It's for us. I think this is the real cure for our own bitterness and anger. It's forgiveness. Sometimes we hold forgiveness back from other people because we don't think they deserve it so that we can have control in the, in the relationship. And you might be right. They may not deserve that kind of forgiveness. But how we respond in that moment shows the hold that God has on us or doesn't. It shows how much we really understand His forgiveness of our sin, of how we forgive or don't forgive others. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness should neither be earned or deserved. Think about yours. Did you do anything to deserve forgiveness of your sins? No. You didn't. It's freely given with no thought to the one receiving it. No thought to the worth of the one receiving it. This is what Paul says here. He says, as God in Christ forgave you, that's how we ought to also forgive others. The only reason that we can forgive anyone is because we have had our sins forgiven. Imagine the mountain of guilt accumulated in your lifetime from all the wrong thoughts and all of your selfish deeds. Could you ever do a right deed to balance out the wrong ones? Given 10 lifetimes, you couldn't do that. Because that's not how God's scale of righteousness works. The beautiful message of the gospel is that you don't have to atone for your own sin. Someone already has. And it's a good thing because we're not capable of atoning for our own sin. Because given a hundred lifetimes to fix all the problems we've done in this one, we would accrue a hundred more lifetimes of problems. And it would just compound that mountain of guilt. So let me just be clear on a couple of things this morning. You can't perform more good deeds in this life than you can bad deeds. You cannot outweigh them in the end. The law of God is designed to show our inability to keep it, not so that we would strive for it and that be our only hope. None of us can reach that. That's an impossible hurdle to jump over. Secondly, you can't force someone to forgive you. As much as we would like that, we can't force someone to forgive you. God, through Christ's atoning death on the cross, he counts every believer, every person who believes, as righteous as Jesus is. So believing in Christ for salvation is believing that he jumped the hurdle of perfection for you. He's done what you never could. We don't have to force God to forgive us. He's already done it. When you believe, when you give yourself over to the one who has already paid your debt in full, you're given a new heart. You're given a new self, one that cannot be overcome fully by sin any longer. So the more that you understand the weight of your own sin, the more you understand forgiveness. Let me say that again. The more that you understand the weight of your own sin, the more you understand forgiveness. And the more you understand forgiveness, the more you will forgive others. We're supposed to replace bitterness and anger with kindness and forgiveness. And this only happens by the grace of God. The key, I think, to putting on the new self is following Jesus. And just just glance ahead at the beginning of chapter 5, Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. 
This is, this is the key, I think. Following Jesus, imitating him, walking in love. This is what Paul is going to instruct us in, in chapters 5 and chapter 6 of Ephesians. Let me write, remind us of what he told the Roman church in Romans thirteen fourteen. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make 2020 a year where the old self is shed off, is put off, and the new self is put on more and more. Brothers and sisters, if you are saved, you are a part of Christ's body. You are a part of the church. You are a new creation in Christ. It's like, as I mentioned a couple of weeks now, it's like we've taken, we've worked all day in that hot heat and we get home and we take that invigorating shower and we're all clean. We don't go put the dirty clothes back on. We put on the new clothes. We put on the new self, the ones of Christ's righteousness, the holy habits that not, that don't just affect us. They affect everyone around us. So to recap, what Paul has told us, the practicality of these things is that God wants his people to be truth tellers. Replace lying with truth telling. We're supposed to replace selfish anger with godly anger. We're supposed to replace stealing with honest work and giving. We're supposed to replace corrupting talk with edifying talk and replace bitterness and anger with kindness and forgiveness. These are the ways that we honor Christ in 2020. This is what we do to impact the world around us. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this is your desire. And I want to pray for us right now that God would give us this desire as individuals and as a church this new year. Let's pray together. Father, we, we so much want to walk worthy of our calling as believers. But the reality is that some are here today and they're not believers. They've, they've never put their faith outside of themselves. They've tried for however many years to be right on their own, to do good stuff, to outweigh the bad stuff, hoping that one day you'll let them into heaven. That's not how this works. And I pray that they would be, they would see that clearly today. What works is when we give up our lives to receive the life of Christ, to exchange our brokenness for his righteousness that he gives freely to all who believe. And so, Lord, forgive us when we don't walk worthy of our calling. Change our ways, Lord. Change our habits so that they bless you and others rather than grieve your spirit. God, change our desires as believers to desire holiness above corrupting talk, you know, above lying and above stealing and being untrue. God, change our desires as a church to help us to love one another to be unified together under Jesus Christ and his authority and your word, Lord, and that our church is marked by a desire to love people and to love you. Lord, help us to put on the new self this year, to practice holy habits, knowing that they impact not just us, but everyone around us. Grant it, Lord, we pray for us in Jesus' name. Amen.